Good evening, everybody. This is Joseph P. Farrell with News and Views from the Nefarium on Thursday, August 25th, 2022. Can you believe it? August already. Anyway, don't forget tomorrow at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, U.S. Central Time, we do have another short format vid chat. We've already got some comments and questions submitted, so please remember to get those questions posted in the comments area, on in the members area, under tomorrow's vid uh, chat by 10 o'clock U.S. Central Time tonight. And chances are I will in all likelihood be in the, in the chat room early tomorrow to carry on our usual pre-chat. And chances are I will probably start the chat a little bit early. There's an interesting article. I really want you to pay attention to this one. There's an interesting article over at RT. And I'm going to read from this article several paragraphs and then come back and comment. Uh, the article's titled, Drawing the Sword, Is Japan Getting Ready to Move Against China? And then there's a rather lengthy sub-headline that reads, Relations with Beijing are crucial for regional trade, but is Tokyo ready to pull it all on the line over Taiwan and Washington's favor? Unquote. Now the article is in RT. I will link it for you. And I'm, I'm calling this kind of Russia's perspective on the Japan china taiwan affair so i want to read a few opening paragraphs from this article and then some concluding paragraphs and then uh, give you my commentary so brace yourselves here we go quote a recent report suggests that japan's government is considering positioning over 1,000 ballistic missiles aimed towards china a move that would mark a major escalation in tensions between Tokyo and Beijing. It is unclear if this will ever materialize, given the threat to regional stability it would carry, as well as the limits imposed by Japan's own constitution. But by this point, it is undeniable that geostrategic competition between Japan and China is a new reality. The two countries may well be vastly economically integrated, but they are old enemies at heart, and their geopolitical ambitions are increasingly clashing across the board. The rise of China threatens Japan's once dominant position in Asia, not least in terms of disputed territories, which if Beijing succeeds in retaking would strategically checkmate Tokyo. While the East China Sea and the disputed Diyako Shinkaku Islands is one thing, the biggest and most urgent flashpoint is in fact a topical subject of late, the island of Taiwan. Japan now makes it a publicly known principle that the continued autonomy of Taiwan is critical to its own survival. Why? Because a reunification of the island with mainland China would result in Beijing gaining maritime dominance around all of Japan's southwest periphery. As a result, Japan is upping its own stakes concerning Taiwan. 
Both before and during the current streak of lawmaker visits to the island, parliamentary delegations from Japan have made similar trips of their own. The, recent assass pardon me, the recently assassinated Abe Shinzo, an architect of Japan's current revisionist foreign policy, was a huge supporter of Taiwan and was set to visit the island himself. Similarly, Taiwan, once under the colonial rule of Japan, which it annexed from China, has also increased its pro-Japan sentiment significantly. The extent of the public mourning it pushed following Abe's murder was very telling. Now I'm skipping a couple paragraphs at this point, folks. This has put Tokyo in a race against time to try to find loopholes around its current peace-oriented constitution in order to increase its defense spending and attempt to balance against China's growing military might. In doing so, it finds support from the other members of the Quad Group, especially the United States and Australia, who are coordinating to try and contain China. And now skipping several paragraphs again. Chinese nationalist commentator Hu Jin, the former editor of the Global Times, declared that if Japan dared point 1,000 missiles at China, China would point 5,000 back and target U.S. bases on Japanese soil. Yet despite that, he said that China-Japan relations above all ought to remain friendly. It isn't China's choosing, despite everything, to pursue antagonism along this path. This poses the question, can Japan keep up in the bid to protect Taiwan and fend off China as a whole? It's not a straightforward task, which is why relations between the two countries will continue to be torn between long-standing rivalry and historical grievances on the one hand, and restraint and interdependency on the other. And that's it. Now, let me, let me point out something very odd about this article. Number one, this appears in RT. In other words, there is some measure of the approval of the, of the Russian government behind this article. And that makes certain statements within this article very, very telling. For example, let me reread these two paragraphs for you. The two countries may be vastly economically integrated, but they are old enemies at heart, and their geopolitical ambitions are increasingly clashing across the board. The rise of China threatens Japan's once dominant position in Asia, not least in terms of disputed territories, which if Beijing succeeds in retaking, would strategically checkmate Tokyo. While the East China Sea and the disputed Diao or Shinkaku Islands is one thing, the biggest and most urgent flashpoint is in fact a topical subject of late, the island of Taiwan. Now let me point out here that this is a very unusual statement for the Russians to countenance, because in reality what Russia is saying here is that Japan has vital interests in the region and they cannot be ignored. Now this is quite a, a if, you, if you're reading this statement in the context that this is actually coming from the Russian government, 
This is quite a, an astonishing statement for them to make because, of course, China, mainland communist China, has been very, very favorably predisposed towards Russia during this whole war between Russia and the Ukraine. And as a result of this, Russia is in a, in a bit of a difficult position here and nonetheless is taking this view of Sino-Japanese relations. In a way, if we stop and think about it, there would be a possibility for Russia to be the broker between Japan and China to get both nations to understand that, number one, Japan cannot leave itself defenseless, and number two, that China has its own economic interests in the region. Russia would be perfectly positioned to be a, a powerful broker in that circumstance. However, there's one thing that mitigates against that, and that is the fact, of course, that Russia's at war with the Ukraine. But notwithstanding that, that problem, I point out again what I pointed out before vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Japan, and that is that Japan has the technology that Russia needs and wants to build out its infrastructure in Siberia, and particularly to build out the Trans-Siberian Railway and other newer Trans-Siberian Railway routes into high-speed rail. Japan has that technology just every bit as much as China does, and Japan also has the money to help Russia fund it. So in other words, I've been pointing out that there's been a geopolitical realignment between Japan and Russia that is equally economic in nature, which does put Russia in a good position to be an honest broker between the two countries, but it's in now a weakened position vis-a-vis -vis the Ukraine. Nevertheless, Russia has chosen to make and release this statement now. So let's look at something else. We've pointed out before, and let's go to those bottom paragraphs, that if Japan were to point 1,000 ballistic missiles at China, China would point 5,000 ballistic missiles back and target U.S. bases on Japanese soil. Now, I want to go back to the period in Japanese history, and you might remember me talking about this on the website before. I want to go back to the period of Japanese history before the accession of Shinzo Abe to power, and this would have been during the late Obama administration, circa the year 2012-2013. It's in that time frame that Japan began to publicly reconsider its policy towards China. And the reason why was that a new government had been briefly elected into power in Japan. And after that government took power, there were two essential planks that it was interested in getting, uh, getting seriously considered. And the first plank was a state visit of then-Emperor Akihito to Beijing. Now, folks, given the historical animosity between Japan and China, particularly after World War II, that was a breathtaking thing to be proposing. This was Japan's way, in my opinion, of trying to bury the hatchet. And as a result of that proposal, the communist Chinese were willing to consider a state visit of the Japanese emperor. 
The other thing that that Japanese government wanted was a removal of the U.S. base at Okinawa. Because if you're not familiar with it, that base has long been a thorn in the side of, of the Japanese, particularly on Okinawa, because of alleged abuses of American by American soldiers of Japanese civilians in that region. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that, that base was on the table for a closure. You recall at that time that President Obama's Secretary of Defense was Robert Gates, the only Republican that remained in Obama's federal cabinet. And Robert Gates issued what can only be considered a threat to Japan, that if it continued to demand the closure of Okinawa, the United States would have to consider that a, a kind of an act of war. That, that wasn't what he said, but that was clearly the implication. His, his words to the Japanese government were basically a threat, back down from this position or else, and he left the or else undefined. And then shortly after that, what did we have? Well, we had the Fukushima disaster. So in my mind, the Fukushima disaster has always been connected to that sudden change of policy on the part of the government of Japan. After the Fukushima disaster, what did we have? Well, Shinzo Abe takes power. The visit of the Japanese emperor to mainland China is never talked about again. And the base at Okinawa, of course, remains open. But the other thing you have to remember is that Shinzo Abe began that process of very quiet Japanese rearmament. He began to build up Japanese military capabilities beyond the 2% gross domestic product per, uh, per year that's in the Japanese constitution. This was Shinzo Abe. And Shinzo Abe was also the one that began to pry open the diplomatic door with Russia. So what I'm arguing here is that for Russia to be taking these types of stances vis-a-vis -vis the legitimate military security, both of China and of Japan, vis-a-vis -vis the issue of Taiwan, is a very, very significant step. Now, I suspect that the USA is going to try to maintain its hold on Japan. Japan has to decide whether or not it wants to continue to trust the American deterrent for its own national security or rearm. Uh, I, I suspect that in the long run, nothing has changed since Shinzo Abe's days, and that Japan, like it or not, is going to be considering the strategic calculus of all of this and fundamentally decide, all right, number one, we, we do need to have a sufficient military that can act as a deterrent against Chinese aggression. But that military should not also be conceived as an attempt to, to challenge China for superiority in the Pacific. So Japan is going to have to walk a very delicate balance of power game and looky, looky, Russia has just stated in a kind of roundabout, intriguing, understated fashion that it's willing to help both nations toward that end.
And that, incidentally, is consistent with Russia's other game of trying to break up the European-American alliance. So this is going to be one to watch very, very carefully. Uh, it's not a given that Japan is in our pocket. It's certainly not a given that uh, Taiwan is in our pocket. And Russia is going to play, as always, a very, very independent, careful diplomatic game. This is one to watch, folks. All right, that's it for today's news and views. Don't forget we have the vid chat tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock U.S. Central Time. Please get your comments and questions posted in the comments area no later than 10 o'clock U.S. Central Time tonight. Bye-bye, everybody. We'll see you on the flip side.